and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am your host. My name is Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. I chat with an entrepreneur. He's got a really interesting perspective on launching businesses, growing businesses, and I know you're going to love learning from him. But before we get to him, a bit about myself. So if this is your first time here, I said welcome back earlier. We welcome back everybody. Even if this is your first time here, I'll give you a welcome as well. And I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And just yesterday, I was actually talking to somebody about the idea of strong skills and how we want to change the vocabulary, how we think about what are called soft skills. So in the corporate world, themes like leadership, teamwork, communication, anything really involving psychology, we call those things soft. And I believe, and our team at Strong Skills believes that when you label those competencies as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. And one of the strong skills that we love to teach is what we call shift your mind. And the experience where we do a a group Zoom experience, we also do it in person. I actually have a talk uh, this week in Chicago where I'm talking about this concept of shifting your mind. And the teachings of shifting your mind come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. And I love doing talks about shift your mind. If you want to learn more about the book, you can, of course, order it. Uh, You can always reach out to me and I'd love to tell you more about the concept of the framework. You can go to our website, strongskills.co, and we've got some information there as well. So I just really appreciate everybody who continues to support the concept that your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. So thanks to all of you who continue to purchase the book, get it for your teams. Uh, I've got a talk in June where they're buying it for their entire team as well. So thanks to all of you who continue to support the concept of shift your mind. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it really does make a difference if you go over to iTunes and write us a review. It only takes a couple minutes. Head over there. Hopefully, you'll give us a good review, uh, and it really does help us expand the reach of the podcast. So thanks again to all of you who continue to support the work that we do here at the Intentional Performers Podcast. Enough about me. 
Now to today's guest. So Julian Smith is the co-founder and CEO at Practice. Previously, he also was the co-founder at a company called Breather, and we get into it in this conversation. It's an interesting journey he had with Breather. They had highs, they had lows, and we actually interviewed a podcast in a breather in New York City with one of our podcast guests, Steve Schlafman. Steve said, hey, let's go over to a breather where we can record in silence. It was a really interesting experience. So Julian's going to share what went into that company and what he's doing today with practice. Additionally, he was a New York Times bestselling author of three books. So he is somebody who's been a speaker. He's been a writer. He's going to talk about his writing process and his writing practice. He's a big journaler and how that helps him shape his leadership and his ability to think creatively. I think that word creative is how I'd best sum up Julian. He is someone who loves to create things, build things, and he really does want to make a massive impact with practice. This company is personal to him as his dad was an executive coach and he's trying to serve people like his dad. So I knew you're going to love this conversation. So here is Julian Smith. Julian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. We have some mutual friends. Uh, so I've been following what you're up to with practice and breather. I recorded a podcast with Steve Schlafman in a breather. So I feel like I'm connected to you, even though this is the first time we've ever talked and met. Uh, when I asked you, hey, what do you love talking about? You said, you know, performance is something that yeah. you mentioned. So I'm curious, how do you think about success and how do you think about failure when you're running a company? Uh, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, dude. It's, so um, how do you think about success when you're running a company? You know, it's interesting. My previous life, kind of like when I wrote books, was very much about being quote what I would refer to today as an IC, like an individual contributor. And I was very focused on being the best that I could as a single person. I, I still care about that today. And since so much of that, like I wrote a thousand blog posts thinking about, okay, how can you like optimize your productivity, you know, and, and all these other things. Uh, but I, I ultimately found that running an organization it turned out to be the highest leverage thing that I could do. And, and so today, the, the, where my focus is in terms of being able to achieve the best outcome or the largest outcome is really focused on kind of like how I hire people and then how I then manage kind of those relationships, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that turns out to be, I still think today, and I, 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 my opinion will stay pretty much the same for a long time. I think that that is one of the highest ways, highest ways that biggest ways to have an impact on the world is work with a team of people that all care about like a common purpose. So is purpose at the core of how you hire? Or how do you think about finding the right people to get on the bus? Yeah, it's interesting. We we just recently hired someone on our. I might refer to them as a sort of a, on a go-to-market team at practice. And I, and we talked me and another dude about how this person had like, had the, had a kind of fire in their belly. And so, so, so much of, it's interesting because like, how are you going to put that on a, on a, on a checklist for recruiting, right? It's most people don't recruit. They either they're smart and they always have the same questions which is good. Like that way you're going to avoid bias. You're going to have some, a set of things to kind of ask people. And you're always going to ask people the same questions. Those are generally good things, but, but there is this, 
almost like X factor in startups, which is a factor of how much do you, how much are, are, of a mercenary are you versus a missionary? And then how, how much energy, energy is like a multiplier on top of everything. So one person I'm thinking of right now on our go-to-market team has always worked with coaches or has always worked with uh, solopreneurs, which is like who we think about as our customers at practice. And so, and, and when I ask them about their motivation, they're like, I just love serving this customer. And whenever they're satisfied, I just feel like an inner, I, I feel like an inner uh, satisfaction because I was able to help someone. And so that's the type of person that is missionary oriented versus mercenary oriented. No one's working for free, but they're missionary oriented. And then other people that are high energy, they tend to, they're young, maybe they're into startups or they were in sports before. I don't care what kind of sport, if they're like an amateur, like cyclist, those people go to the hilt and they will die before they stop. You know, that's the type of, it's not always that specific type, but those are, those are ways to think about how to get someone on your team and be like, this is the right person for us and at this stage. And the earlier the stage, the more it needs to be about uh, it being, uh, being just full of energy and ready to do anything. It's interesting as I hear you describe missionary and mercenary, I think of myself um, because I'm your target audience from a client standpoint. I'm an executive coach. I've been in mental performance coaching and sport and executive coaching. I made the decision after talking it through with some mentors and coaches to not actually scale. And you started this conversation by saying the best way that you can make an impact was actually to, to build something. Mm. Um, for me, I made the decision not to go that path and, and stay in this coaching lane. I still do things with other coaches and I bring them on to projects and I'll do RFPs and, and bring on coaches to, to work on it. So I still do some of that, but they're not formal employees. And I think about myself, the reason I'm in coaching and not in finance, for example, is because I was interested in helping people and serving people. Not to say you can't do that in finance. God bless my friends and family that are in those worlds. But for me, I was always drawn to sociology or psychology or, or things mm -hmm. that involve the human experience. Um, but people would describe me in the coaching world as highly competitive nonstop, like you do this podcast, you do a newsletter, you're, you're relentless. Uh, my clients have said, I'm really good at sales. I have an intensity to me that I'm aware of. Um, and so it's interesting because I'm thinking about myself where I would be in that. If you were looking to hire me, I'm kind of a blend. Mm -hmm. I don't know what yeah, you do dude. with someone like me. Do you, I don't, yeah. I, I'm kind of a problem to hire because mm -hmm. um, I think if you're a blend of both, it maybe it, it can cause some, some friction. I, I was mm -hmm. hard as an employee. I was not an easy person to, to manage. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So that resonates with me a lot. I, I think I was a hard employee as well. I think I was a, probably a terrible employee in a lot of cases. I wanted a, a level of autonomy that I never earned, strictly speaking. And, and I think that, you know, I used to think about it like, like, so what I'm showing you here in the, in sort of like a video version of what we're talking about here is, is like a long arc. And so typically people inside of the system, they're going in a straight line, but people who don't really fit into the system need to step out of it 
and they're, they got to earn some chops somewhere else, like out in the wilderness, you know, and then they got to come back with these earned chops that they have. And they're in a different place that they could not have gotten to had they just stayed inside of the system. So you have these people, they're like management consultants, right? It, it's like one model of this type of person that they, just, they were just like in an excellent school. They work really hard in kind of a linear way. They, they go and they work at McKinsey or they work at Bain or whatever other place. And then they're like, oh, and then I'm going to become like a chief of staff at a startup. And then, and so like everything is like really clear about what the next path is. They went to Stanford, like whatever, you know, and, and my path was always the opposite of that. I felt that I had an inner val- a value in myself that I saw. It was very difficult for me to show other people. And so, uh, so I had to, I had to step completely out of the system and I, I, I did crazy things and I connected with crazy people. I found like, I ended up in Zen monasteries in Japan. I ended up hanging out with like crazy body modification enthusiasts in the nineties. I would like, I was just like in wild, extremely wild places. And, and, and ultimately I, my, my first love was really, I think, or one of them was really technology. And it was always kind of like a, like a, red thread, so to speak, as, as my friend Tamsin would say, that was always there throughout the entire thing. And I would always build projects in using some kind of technology to try to achieve some like common or, or good, common good or some other thing like that. And so that it, it was, it was businesses, books that were about technology, or it was like, weird, like, technology projects that would connect like the disconnected people or like, and try to create empathy between two different groups or all these different wild things that I would make. And, and so it's really clear to me now, I see it now when I'm, when I'm standing in front of somebody, if this is somebody who is from outside of the system, who, who has to like go out into the wilderness and kind of prove themselves before they come back, or if it's someone that just fits inside of the system and who is able to do like, who has a preset path. And those, I I would think of those two types of people and I would look at them today and I would say, one of them is maybe a good early stage employee and the other one is a good later stage employee. One of them, it's just like, go out and here's here's your number and then just go and do whatever. I used to say crazy things at Breather. I would be like, and I would never say this. It's so, it's so, and I didn't mean it in a strict sense, but I would be like, kill yourself before you fail at this goal. And the type of people that I had, I didn't really mean kill themselves, but I would never say that today. And they would go out and they would do crazy things in order to achieve early numbers because an early stage company needs that type of energy and needs that type of drive. But then you would get to this later stage and it's different. It becomes more about a linear path and it's a different type of person that'll do that. Yeah. And we're going to come back to you in a second, but in sports, we see that with athletes, they'll do whatever it takes to win. And you need to have people on your team. You were saying earlier, you want people almost with a chip on their shoulder. There's a relentlessness to them in sports. We talk about that all the time, but then if you're going to win a championship, you also need people that are going to be willing to sacrifice for the whole and find Mm -hmm. people that are going to, play a role and maybe they take a step back in order for the team to be successful. But for you personally, you mentioned earlier that you were an individual contributor and now you're taking on these roles where you're, I'm assuming wearing more of a leadership hat 
and trying to empower others. And so we see it all the time. Once again, in sports, an athlete doesn't necessarily make for a great head coach, a great salesperson doesn't always make for a great sales manager. Have you found that your ability to be an individual contributor has helped you, hindered you as you try to empower others and build organizations? I would say I had, I had no respect for management as a thing. And now I realize, so now I, I've been a startup CEO for 10 years in various places, right? And so because I've been a startup CEO for 10 years, I don't think that it's interesting, you know, you find yourself thinking sometimes, oh, if you if you had a company and your company was acquired, I could, I could put maybe on one hand the type of the people that I could work with, right? And I, I'll, I'll actually just kind of like say them out loud as I think about them right now. I, Elon Musk at the time of this recording just bought Twitter. And so, so I could work for Elon Musk. Like that's a level of person I feel that I could work with. Hey, Patrick Julian, Collison. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. can you yeah. go? It's just fascinating as you mentioned yeah. the Twitter thing. I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I love Twitter. It's just yeah. interesting. Half of my Twitter feed thinks he's the devil. The other half yeah. thinks he's like the biggest hero in the history of earth. For you, yeah. why is he somebody that you feel as though you could work for? So, so first of all, is I don't think he's either the devil or or an angel. I think he's a person that is doing things on a different arc than most people are, and I think that that deserves a lot of respect. Uh, and and so as to why, I it is because he's he he, he is crazy, and I, and and people that uh, that think on ten year time frames or think on twenty year or on you know twenty five year time frames. Uh, there's not a lot of people that have the opportunity to do that. They tend to be rich, obviously, because they have they are afforded that time. Uh, and when you when you are in front of people like this, uh, you you tend to learn a lot really quickly. Another person that's like this, and I give you an example of someone that I, I met had the opportunity to meet them at the dinner is is Patrick Collison who started Stripe. So Patrick and John Collison were two people that I was sitting at a small dinner with. And, and I will never forget, another, this is another person I could work with, could work for, uh, and never forget, uh, I was like, oh yeah, we use Stripe and Breather is like what I said at the time when this happened. And he was like, how's it going? Do you have any feedback for me? And I was like, you run a $100 billion business and you are asking me for feedback. I will never forget that that happened. And it, it's just like the, the, first of all, there was an amazing deference to him. It's not someone who's egotistical. So it's actually a completely different person than the last person I mentioned, right? And there's no, there's no ego. And it's a deference to the customer that I've like never seen in that type of person before. It's incredibly impressive. So Patrick and John Collison are another one of those people. Toby Lutke is another person. The guy who started Shopify is, is another person. And there's like, there's not a, there's not a lot of people like that where I felt like I could, I wouldn't even have to be at number two. I could be like down in the org somewhere, but it would, there wouldn't be a lot of places where that would be the case. You asked me, could, if you, if you, I view myself as a leader or as an IC or what type of person, when, if you write books, I haven't written books in a long time, but you, you are fundamentally an IC trying to drive value through this weird solo madness that you have. But when you're a, when you're a CEO or a startup founder, you have to drive value through an organization, which is something I never respected before. I thought of middle managers as people in like the office, like the show, which was like a fucking joke and people that drove zero value. 
in in organizations uh, that are trying to do a lot and that and that grow really fast and hopefully that have someone at the helm that is like a good leader, uh, managers drive a, t- a tremendous amount of value. And I didn't realize that. And that was, a, I totally shifted my perspective on, on that being the case. So here I am, I'm at Breather, I'm interviewing uh, Steve Schlaff. And by the way, Tanzan Webster, also a podcast guest, Brilliant Mind, who you mentioned oh, yeah. earlier. Um, and I'm curious about Breather because here you are, it seems like everything's going right. I think y'all raised $150 million. You got 250 employees. You're in 10 cities. I'm in Manhattan in an office uh, for your company. But as I prepared for this conversation, it doesn't look like that was the rosy ending, so to speak. And I know it's, it's still around, but it was acquired um, can you talk about some of the mistakes along the way or some of the failures that that you may have made and what you learned from that and how you're yeah. trying to make sure you don't make those mistakes with um, practice? Yeah, I mean, it would make different mistakes. <laughs> I, I, seriously. So the first thing is, is, is office as a category was obliterated by COVID in a lot of ways. So I was fortunate not to be the CEO and not be part of the management team at Breather when COVID was happening, but I was on the board and I watched it. And I watched what happened to the office category, even in Manhattan. Uh, you know, the, the example I sometimes like to give is, is when the Empire State Building is like literally half empty, you know that something fucked up is happening to the category, right? Because the Empire State Building is like a representation. It's like the ultimate example of the category of office and what's going to happen to them. And so I, I sat on the board uh, during COVID and I watched people that were better operators than me and better operators that I could hire myself, although I did hire the CEO, I was involved in hiring the CEO, uh, operate through what's got to be the hardest, craziest, hardest thing that anyone has ever had, had to operate on. And, and by the way, this, the same thing to a degree happened. I, I didn't watch the We Work show and I probably won't, but probably the same version of things happened at WeWork, happened at you know all the other kind of tech, tech enabled uh, sort of office category companies. And so, but for me, when it comes down to mistakes and things that I, I could do well and I could do not well, I'll return to the the thing that I said earlier, which is people make everything happen. And and when it's not people, it's culture. And so today I'm very deliberate at practice about culture and and I'm even more deliberate about people than I ever was. And I think my view at the time at Breather, it's true that it raised $150 million. I, sorry, I raised a, <laughs> it's funny, but I'm, I'm, I'm distancing myself in my language. I'm saying it raised, in fact, I raised $150 million. That's true. And, and that we were able to execute on a vision, uh, really that was mine and I was able to build it from scratch. But so, so much of it was, from an attitude of almost like uh, poverty of like, of like, Oh my God, you know, nobody knows who I am or like respects the thing that I do. It's like, who can I have that I can, that it can be a part of it. 
And so it was much more scattershot. I ended up with some incredibly talented employees, but I also ended up with people that uh, looking down the line, I would think, huh, would I hire this person again? And the answer would definitely be no. And so uh, it, to, to be deliberate about the people that you work with has got to be the most valuable thing that you can possibly do at a startup, especially at the early stage. I often, I, I think about Patrick Collison at Stripe. I didn't hear this from him, but I heard it from one of the first employees. The first 10 people at Stripe, if I remember correctly, were all previous entre entrepreneurs. And they were incredibly deliberate about being able to get the right people on, on the team. And that drives the next 100 people to be a certain category of person. Uh, and especially because a CEO at some point, it becomes impossible for them to talk to everybody even, right? Uh, the people that you choose and the culture that you choose become all the more important. It was, it, if I think back on it, it it's kind of an, an amazing thing that I was able to do that. I never started a company before that was venture back ever. And I'd never built a product before, especially a product that required sales, operations, real estate that required finance that required you know all these other categories to exist it's amazing that i was able i'm nothing all the credit but it is amazing that i was able to get as far uh having never had that experience before it, it is it's uh it's like a, a moment of alchemy that is just wild so there's successes in there and if i'm hearing you correctly some of the mistakes were not being as intentional as you could be about who we were bringing on to make sure they were aligned with where we were at and what we would need going forward. I would definitely say that the number one thing that I care about today is making sure the team is amazing and make sure the team is all aligned together. And that is a lesson that I learned there. That's right. And as you're building practice, how do you split up your time? How do you think about it? Are do you still that? I know, I think I, I read or I listened in preparation for this. You still write a thousand words a day. So there are still parts of you that are that individual contributor, or maybe you're doing that just for your own personal growth. But I'm curious, have you adjusted how you operate during the day from when you did maybe when you started Breather um, and you transitioned there? How are you thinking about your day and the roles and responsibilities that you take on? This is a really good question. I, and I can tell that you prepped a lot. It's so I do still write a thousand words a day. And I have always done it. And I, I learned it from Julia Cameron's book, uh, The Artist's Way, when I was, which I must have read when I was like 18 or 20 or something. And so it was a long time ago. And the reason that I do it is because it is a form of diary writing, so to speak, that is completely judgment free. What's important in, in writing, if you're gonna if you're gonna write a thousand words a day, uh, I did it for work when I was when I wrote books for a living, and when I, I mean, it was a combination of a blogger and book writer or whatever, and, and public speaker for a living, and I do it today in order to clarify what I care about, and so it, it it's interesting because some days you want to write fifteen hundred words, some days you don't want to want to write at all, but it becomes almost like a religion that you follow for yourself of getting up, I actually, it, it, my, the ritual is even, is even more strict than that. I get up and I'll put on probably one of five potential albums. It's all, I think I put on the same music to get into the same headspace. And then one, and in that headspace, I write a thousand words 
and then that's when my day begins. And uh, and so it what it does, and it, it only works this way if it's completely judgment free, and it can only be judgment free if you never look at the file again. Mm. So you could write it, never write it, never look at it again, almost practically ever, and then you'd be like, cool, whatever I thought that that was like a safe place. So it, what happens is it's over and over and over again, every day, your thousand words become this safe place that you can think from. And that's actually a very clarifying thing. And I, I don't, I think it's a place that most people don't have in their lives and they could probably use. You never go back and, and read it. No, I never go back and read it. There are very few exceptions. Like say some crazy thing happened. Like for example, my you know, I mean, whatever, I'm not making this a thing, but like, it was a crazy day in my life, like a couple of years ago where my father passed away. And then almost on the same day, I thought I had to, would, have, would have had to put my dog down on the same day. Wow. Right. So say something crazy like that happened. I have not actually reviewed that day, but, but I would feel comfortable going back to that day and looking at it. Right. But on average, the average, you know, page or whatever pages from that day have been reviewed zero times hmm. for what almost year? every single day. What year did your dad pass? Uh, like 2019. I should know this precisely. He wouldn't be upset if I <laughs> if I didn't know. But I think it was two that It was before COVID. And the reason I ask is your dad was an executive coach, a career coach. Hmm. Um, did he know what you were building, and and what what was his response to what you were building with practice? Yeah, he, I don't think that he did know. Now I I talk to so many coaches uh, that it, it's it like a, it's like a part of my life, right? And I don't know that I could have built a thing for coaches if my father was still alive. He probably it probably would have been like weird for me to do it. But now, if if I think back on it, going back to this idea of this red thread with Tamson that we we turns out we both know, I've I've been working to kind of empower solo people for as long as I can, as long as I can think like my first book, which was the, the one that hit the New York times bestseller list. And like all these other things was really about empowering people to be able to do more with technology. And, and I thought of the reader as someone who was fairly unsophisticated and who needed to get more done, but didn't have the resources to do that. And even today at practice, I still think about the, the, the main customer for whom we build is a person who has no resources, had no, had no like executive assistant, has nothing, and is really building a business by themselves. And, and kind of like, in, in some cases, doesn't know where to turn or doesn't have enough time. Breather's original customer was that same person. I've, I've been working on this persona, this person, and there's a lot of people in America like this and elsewhere uh, for well, maybe even 15 or more years. I'm smiling. I remember I was in uh, Vietnam, not like the war, but I was in Vietnam visiting. <laughs> and in case anyone doesn't know, I, yeah, it was uh, like, I didn't assume so. Yeah. Let's clarify that. But, and I was talking to my brother, we were like on a boat looking out at the water and I was like, I got this idea. It's convenient meeting. And there are all these strip malls all over the place. And I'm, I just go to Starbucks. And so I go to all these Starbucks and I set up and I meet with clients there. Cause when I first started out, I didn't have an office and I wanted to make it as convenient as possible for my clients to see me. So I would drive to their house or I would meet them at their closest Starbucks. And so I had this idea of creating office space for individual contributors like myself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I obviously didn't do it. I've got a lot of ideas and, and don't necessarily pull on them all the time. Um, but then I'm thinking about you describing the individual contributor that you served. And once again, I think it's, it's me. I don't have an executive assistant. I am calendaring. I do all my podcast stuff. I do my newsletter. I've got people that help me that I pay to help me. I've got a designer that helps me. I have someone who helps mm-hmm. with the podcast. Um, but, uh, those are people that help me, you know, in, in very basic ways, but it's interesting. Two nights ago, I was talking to someone, I was explaining to my company and I said, yeah, if I wanted to, I know I could build this thing out even more and get contracts and really go after some things. And he was like, why don't you? And I go, I love coaching. Like I love the act of coaching and I don't know how much I'd love managing somebody else um, and building a business and worrying about all the other issues. I have a hard enough time keeping my books and and yes, you can hire those people. But for me, it became clear that, Hey, I think I'm going to just stay in this lane. I'm comfortable earning what I'm going to earn. If I want to earn more, I can charge more. I can take on more clients. Like there's some options there, but for you, once again, you started off by saying, I feel like I can be best used and best served um, empowering people like me or creating technology for people like me. So if you think about your purpose around why you're doing this with practice, um, how would you describe that? How would you define that? Yeah, I, I, I think of us, and it's, it's not just me, it's like a group of people, all of us that really, really care about this type of person. And that and it's a gigantic number of people that are, and especially one, it's like once COVID happened, happened, whatever is happening or happened or whatever, I, it, that it, it suddenly everyone was like, oh, I can just do this from anywhere. And that's like the first kind of shackle that's like unlatching itself, you know? And then they're like, wait, so I can do anything? And so there's, there is this gigantic, there's a giant amount of solopreneurs that are starting businesses this year, next year. The, the, the number is, is insane to comprehend. And so uh, when you think about these people and that they start with effectively zero resources, like I look at, at people like that and I think, uh, man, it would be great to be able to help people at the very beginning of their journey. And even today, like we do do that, but for the next incremental person that's just starting next year, you know, whatever the business may be, it's like, sometimes I think about the people starting a lawnmower, you know, the, like they're the business mowing lawns for like their neighborhood or something. It's just fascinating. And the reason, the reason I'm so interested in this is because even though my, I think sometimes of my father as an entrepreneur, I didn't really like think of people the way we talk about outsiders I didn't have anybody in my entourage that was an entrepreneur, strictly speaking, and that I thought of as a person that started businesses. And so it was never a choice in my life to be able to be an entrepreneur and to go and start a business and hire people. Like I knew that people did that, but there was no one that I sat with and when my parents brought people over for dinner or something that was that type of person. There are people today, I've read some, read some random BuzzFeed article about like half of the celebrities that we know today are just, just like kids of other celebrities. Hmm. And so it's just like, there's a cycle that, that is perpetuated from entrepreneur to the next generation. And same thing from, uh, you know, actor to the next generation of actor and so on and so forth. 
but most of us do not have that level of mentorship or access and literally don't even know where to begin. And so I'm just like fascinated by that type of person who just starts from scratch and just decides on of their own will that they're going to do something and being able to help that person is very motivating. It's so cool because my dad, as I met, was an entrepreneur, loves starting companies. Um, so I was around that my whole life and he was very present mm-hmm. home for dinner, hall of fame, dad, um, hall of fame, business person, but hall of fame, dad. Mm. And so I had that modeled for me completely. And it's fascinating because when I got into my mat and I did a master's in sports psychology and I'd be around these other people and I would be talking about money and how do you run a business? And those people thought I was like this business like money guy. And then I'd be around my other friends and they'd be like, Oh, Brian's the one that just likes to help people. Um, and, and so I, I like live in these different worlds, but what's fascinating. And I think what people don't always realize is that my first six months in coaching, I made $8,000 and total, mm-hmm. that wasn't a yeah. 8,000 a month. It was $8,000 mm-hmm. total. And so it is real. Like you don't have a salary. Most people, when they start their individual thing. And that's where the privileges that I did have with my family and, and knowing that I'd be okay were essential and helpful. Um, Mm. And it is interesting because people come to me all the time and ask me, Hey, I want to start my own thing. I want to do this. I'm like, that's fine. Here's my story. I have my own journey. I had my own networks. Like I, I don't know what's going to work for you and what's not. And I've been asked to speak back at my old schools and and I have a hard time sharing my journey because I say I'm an N of one and I don't know how to scale me. And if I knew how to scale me, I'd be doing what Julian's doing. I don't know. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on how to help uh, solopreneurs, which I think is probably what I'd call myself. If I'm being Mm -hmm. frank, I like to play in different sandboxes. I like to do different things. I never end up doing like one thing. I, I have my hands and I do retreats. I do the podcasting. I do a newsletter. I did an assessment tool, a book. Like I like creating stuff. I like building things, but it's mm-hmm. usually I bring in people to help me with it. And, but it's still like my thing. Anything that you all have seen at practice as far as how to help uh, solopreneurs who have multiple different networks and different journeys and different experiences, anything that you see a common thread to pull on to help them? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say how I I bridged the gap because I, I was doing the writer, speaker, consultant, vaguely thing. And then I was like, man, huh, there's this idea. And I had the idea that was one of the most common things that people used to say to me at Breather when I started it. They'd be like, oh yeah, I had that idea, this exact kind of like meeting thing that we just talked about. Right. The idea is relatively common but for some reason I was super passionate about it. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, I need money. And I was like, well, I need money and I can't do this by myself. And so I was forced to switch roles and to, and to, and to, to learn how to scale a company from an N of one to an N of whatever it, it ultimately became over 250 people and, and, and larger, right? And so what the model that that people that are executive coaches or coaches of any type typically use is they go partnership and then the type of customer becomes larger like instead of it being a executive at a business they then say okay we're going to we're going to coach uh, the whole organization and all of their managers this is what they typically do 
And then one person will become a salesperson. And then there'll be a set of basically uh, of coaches that are to a degree fungible, like, like undifferentiated from one another, but that'll all be highly qualified. And it'll be like, we all serve these bigger businesses. And then, and then at the higher end of these things is, are things like BetterUp, which, are, which is gigantic and does this uh, in a marketplace like fashion, I think is like worth like $10 billion at this point. And, but there's an increasing number of them that are basically groups of, you know, I, I play in the world of coaches and that's what we're talking about today. But there's, a, there's an increasing number of these, these coaches that essentially come together and do exactly what you're talking about. The, the challenge will become, if you ever decided to do this or if someone's listening and they decide to do this, is they do step away from the work. I, I coach five CEOs today and they're all early stage CEOs that have been doing it for much shorter periods of time than I have. And, and to do that in order to instead sell coaching, but then not to do the actual coaching would be, would be a loss for me. And you probably feel like it would be a loss for you. So that's the challenge. The challenge is, 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 uh, it is, is to scale beyond your own thing. Another way that people do it sometimes is they do it by doing groups, but then you also lose that one-on-one interaction, right? So it's not an easy solution ultimately. Yeah, I think it's each person has to figure out what the heck they want, um, which for coaches is kind of what we're in the business of is helping people figure out what they want and also what gives them fulfillment. And that intersection, mm-hmm. if you can find both, is is really key. For you, yeah. who helps you? Who who coaches you or who mentors you? Who are the people that help you make sure that you're heading in the right direction? I have a lot of coaches around me now. I was fortunate because my father was a coach. I, I was never weirded out by it the way that, you know, because even coaching today, coaches are growing a lot today from a perspective of the market. It's growing really rapidly, but it had this period where it was like super fucking weird and that nobody really knew about it. And the idea that you had it, I was, I was talking to someone recently and they were like, it seems so indulgent, this idea that you would have a coach, right? And even, and a lot of people still feel this thing and they don't know anybody that has one or something like that. So I didn't, I didn't go through this. My first coach that I had at Breather and that I kept for the longest time at Breather was Peter Shallard, who is actually like a, a, a relatively, I think, well-known dude in, in New York and who's referred to often as the shrink for entrepreneurs. And so you can look him up and put, you put it in the show notes. And I think most of the time right now, he actually, he doesn't take on new clients. He was the first person that was ever my official coach while I ran a company. But today I start to realize that there are, I mean, there's hundreds of coaches out there. The thing that's fascinating is nobody knows how to find them, right? Except by referral. Someone would talk to you and say, uh, hey, uh, you know, do you have, do you know somebody that could take me on as a client or I'm starting to look to, to, to look for a coach? Could you refer me like two or three different people that I could talk to? And, and inside of coaching, there's this weird paradigm where people are either insanely full and have capacity for zero people, or they have trouble finding clients and they have no idea, they're super qualified, but for some reason, the marketing thing has just never worked out for them or they don't know how to do it. And so uh, people have either very few clients or they have an insane pack of clients and a giant wait list. I'm fortunate that I have wait lists, but I only do it five, five hours of, like a week at most. What do you, what do you like about coaching? 
I like uh, preventing other people. I like the, first of all, the intimacy of the relationship is really nice because uh, it means that people are being, especially CEOs, CEOs have almost no opportunity to be their honest self. They're almost always on. And so to give people an opportunity to not be on and to really like if they need to complain or if they need to be afraid or if they, whatever, or if they need to be proud, whatever it is, to just allow them to authentically like in, in coaching or in therapy, they call this holding space for someone. To be able to do that is actually incredibly rewarding. And to have been a CEO, I'm still a CEO today, and to do it with another CEO is a really nice thing that it really feels like both people understand problem X, whatever that is. That's the first thing. The second thing is it lets you step out of your own company, which is also really rewarding. So I have, every business has problems. Our business is practice, is growing quite rapidly, has a bunch of money, it's great, it's a good situation. Uh, but even so, to be able to step out of my company's problems and to be a part of someone else's experience for a certain amount of time each week is really nice and is like a nice break in a way, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I like about coaching ultimately, but I don't think that I could ever be one of those people that could do it. I, there are people that I know that do it full-time, like 30, 40 hours a week, and then have 25, 35 clients at any given time. I'm not one of those people, I think. I'm one of those people that scales my price if I want to keep doing it, but that doesn't do it 35 hours a week. I think it would be really intense because that focus on the customer is, is a, a difficult focus to hold on to. Even, even three, four hours a day is, is really draining to do it. Oh, for sure. So to give people background, first of all, what's kind of cool is I've gotten at least two clients from the podcast, which is mind blowing to me that this microphone could lead to people wanting to work with me. Um, but the way I do it is I have 10 clients that I see every other week. Um, so that's, and I do 75 minute sessions and then I have 20 that I see once a month. And so I technically have 30 clients, but if you think about from a weekly standpoint and you know, math, you could, divided however you want. It's really like 10 clients a week. Um, and I find it to be still, I still have the autonomy and freedom to do this. I like to play golf. I can get out there. I, I write, I, I do a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I agree with you. I think for me, that's afforded me to do it full time and still have my, my freedom. And by the way, those cadences, I think really work. So the once a month people, I only will do that with them once they've gone with me every other week for six months. So once we've established the relationship, then I can dive in once a month. I won't start with someone once a month from, from the get-go. Um, so I think yeah. those boundaries are, are really important. Um, I also think coaching is sacred. So those five people that are working with you, you're holding space for them to use the term that you used earlier. Like that's a big deal. It's a, it's a sacred space. There's a lot of trust and honesty. Um, and I read this in a, I think a blog post that you have this prompt where you said, have you experienced the sacred recently? Oh, I wow. just thought that was like a really cool question. Can you yeah. talk to me about that prompt and how that yeah. helps you and, and how you leverage that? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Okay. So people go to, some people go to church for this, right? And, and when they go to church, uh, 
that that is they have this connection to something greater than them that is not like community community can do it too and sometimes you get church and you get community at the same time uh but then there's a bunch of people that uh that need to find it another way or they need more right and and so so what i find really interesting about that uh, the way that i do it by the way is i keep it in my to-do list as a recurring thing but it doesn't recur every day. It recurs infrequently to remind me that this is important. And the thing that uh, that is the most common place for me to find it is in nature. And I'm on Vancouver Island today. And Vancouver Island is this crazy, crazy place where, where in fact, it's just incredibly dense and, and, the, and the nature is like almost prehistoric and amazing. And it's also like there's beaches and all this other stuff. So, so I, I try to get that from this place more often. But I'll tell you something amazing that I did get it from. There is a church in, uh, and again, I, I'm typically not on an everyday basis a religious person, but there's this church in Barcelona that is built by uh, by Gaudi, which is this unbelievably insane architect. And, and it was, it's called the Sagrada Familia, which means the Holy Family. And it's a Catholic church and it is still being built. And, and what the thing that's weird about it is that this church was built in the middle uh, of the process of it being designed. The original guy died and then another person took it, which is Gaudi, is the most famous person that ever architected it and then he died and it's still being built and so they, so if you go into this church it's a very famous landmark in, in barcelona it looks like a forest inside which is crazy to think about that this there's this uh this idea of this place that's supposed to be sacred in the sense that jesus and, and the apostles and blah 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 but in fact the the sense of the sacred that it creates this church it's, it's wild is a sense of the naturally sacred. And so it, I don't know if you can find videos or pictures of this online. I imagine that you can, but I don't know if you can create the same experience as seeing it in person. If you ever find yourself in Barcelona and you're listening to this, you, you should go, there are usually long lines to go there. And it, it, it's crazy. It looks like almost like a, like a, like a grove. And it looks like it's a natural place. It was designed to look like a forest, like you're inside of it. And, uh, and, and so I think that you need a connection, no matter who you are, and no matter what way you get it, you do need a connection to something greater than yourself. There's a lot of different ways I try to get that. You know, I try to, I try to build things that are, that are bigger than what I, you know, uh, than, than what I feel every day. Like I, I, maybe if I'm cooking for a couple of people, that's like a small version of that. Like, to, to be able to share something with family or something. But as much as possible, I try to connect the things that are that are much bigger than myself to kind of remember like that there's a lot of stuff out there in the world. This is like one way to do it. There's lots. I have a client who recently told me, I want to build big shit. <laughs> and he said, like that's what he, he wants to do. And he's served, you know, he's served in the military. He's mm -hmm. worked for a publicly traded company uh, worked for a nonprofit and he's like, I want to build big shit. And yeah. for you with breather, you were seemingly building big shit. Right. And mm -hmm. 
and here you are with practice, you've raised $10 million. You've got people that whose names other people know of involved in, in that fundraise, Tony Robbins, uh, Anderson, uh, a 16. Um, and so these are, these are names for some, if they had raised $150 million and then it seems like that exit did not go great they might be fearful of going back to that well again and saying, mm-hmm. all right, we're going to go build something big again. They might say, all right, I tried to build my big thing. Look, we did great. We had 250 people. We had offices in 10 cities. It was successful, but maybe mm-hmm. I need to go back to being an individual contributor. What inside you allows you to say, no, I'm actually going to go mm-hmm. again. And, and I, I have conviction and belief that this is going to work. And, and obviously these people that are, are, serious investors are, are believing you. They, they're, they, they're, they're on board. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I feel shy saying the best investors, but it is at this stage of the best investors. And that's, so that's true. When Jerusalem Horowitz, Tony Robbins, and a bunch of really the best angel investors in the world. The reason that I, it's interesting because there's a lot of people that once they go into venture and they build a venture back company once, regardless of what the outcome was, uh, they're just like never again. They hate they fundraising. Hate it. I mean, yeah. they, I, hate, they hate fundraising. Hate yeah, fundraising. It's yeah. it's dirty for them. They feel yeah. they they don't feel good about it. Yeah, I had a I have to say I had a really good experience with a, a coaching client recently, where first of all this this company is already is growing and doing really well, but I was uh, I've coached this this dude who actually came at me from a book that I I wrote called The Flinch, which is like a really popular out there in the world. Lots of people have read it. And he had read this book and he was like, I want to, I want to sort of like evolve this to the next thing. And he uh, runs a venture back company. And I got like probably the most privileged, really, what a, a really lovely thing to say. I said, how do you feel? He was at the end of this process where he'd gotten like three term sheets from like great investors and this company had scaled out and it's, it's raised a lot of money now. And he was like, I feel like I could never have done this unless you were telling me and you were, you were helping me how to do it. And that, I was just like, this is an amazing, so what a blessing to be able to have that. Of course, it's hit, of course, it's him that did it. I didn't really do anything. I was just a, a coach in his corner, right, so to speak. So uh, I will say, I don't feel the same way about venture that most people feel. I feel that you got to know what you're getting into. I didn't raise like a couple million bucks and then my thing died, right? I I, I ran a successful venture back company in as much as it was scaling and it was doing what it needed to do. And it got to the stage that it was clearly succeeding. The margins were working. It was scaling properly, all these other things. And so, and so I very much, I'm not, you know, there are other people that understand venture better than me. But I very much understand what venture is and what the transaction is and what your initial what what you're really getting into when you do it. And for me, what venture uh, really means and being in bed with venture capitalists, I'm fortunate that they're really good venture capitalists. Uh, what it really means is is uh, access. First of all, access to money, obviously, for obvious. You know, uh, that's the sort of a big part of the what you're doing. But then the other is like access to a real strong density of talent. And, and you can't just, it's just the kind of the reality of the business. Like 
Maybe in other industries you can, but venture brings together incredibly smart people, incredibly talented people. You know, you don't even typically you'll talk with them. And if they're the right type of person, they'll come work for, for you for less than they worked at the other place wherever it was before. Right. But and they'll do that with recognition that it's first of all, there's a maybe there's a ideally there's a career opportunity. Maybe there's a financial opportunity sort of in the on the equity side on top of that. But the, the other reason is like collective mission. And everybody wants to do something awesome and they're willing to work hard to do that. And you have to do it. The CEO have to do it. The old founders have to do it. But if you have that alchemy and you're able to bring that all together, it's just like this, I, you know, I've, I met people in while while building venture back companies. I've built. I've absolutely met the smartest people that I know, and for sure the hardest working people that I know, and the most capable people that I know. It doesn't mean they're all just in this space. There's lots of people doing other things in other spaces that are super capable, but this is the best way that I know to bring them together mm. is by choosing something that I personally care about and then gathering people like that together. And, and so when uh, <laughs> I, I know really smart startup people that have been CEOs of venture back companies that have done well, that are like, never again, can't do it. And I'm like, I totally know what I'm getting in for. And uh, I'm comfortable with what that means. It sounds like you have clarity around what the relationship is, what the dynamic is, um, what they're looking for. It's, yeah. it's it, there's, there's clarity there. Uh, as far yeah, as it's what, also what that the goals I, are. I, you're totally right. And it's also that I've been able to detach because it may be because of the fact that I've written books that have been successful and I've been like a good public speaker. It's made money doing other things. And I ran different types of businesses before this. I'm, it's my identity, don't get me wrong, my identity absolutely was attached to being the CEO and the co-founder of Breather, and to a degree it's, a, it's attached to this business, but less so than the people who have done like nothing before that at all. If, they, if all you've done is just run one venture back company and it takes off, then holy hell, if it, if it doesn't go the right way, are you in for like a reckoning? In my case, I felt and feel much more comfortable with the ideas of these ups and downs and the uncertainty. There is some irony here, which is you've been an individual contributor. You've been successful as an individual contributor. You're building a company for individual contributors, but the company you're building is not an individual. You're not an individual contributor anymore. Yeah. It's just kind of a fascinating, it's fascinating to just listen to. Yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to step out from from it. I have to keep doing it in order to be able to, to be, to know what I'm building and to make sure it's the right thing. But you have to step out of it in order to build something else. Like Toby had to stop selling snowboards to build Shopify, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that I am him or that I'm at that scale, but that's how I feel about it. It's just like, okay, well, let's build a system that will serve the next thousand, the next 10,000, next 100,000 people like this. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I watched the documentary Dear Rider about the founder of Burton Snowboards, which you just mm. sort of triggered that for me. Great documentary. And the guy who started it basically started snowboarding. And uh, But it talks about their growth and them acquiring other businesses and 
And to your point, I heard you say throughout, we have to stay connected to our customers. He was so obsessed with staying connected to the snowboarding community. Um, mm. I highly recommend people watch it. It was, it was a powerful movie, especially for entrepreneurs. Um, if you see where you are today, you mentioned, gosh, people are going more towards coaching today as a profession or even as an individual contributor. We can now work from anywhere in the world. We can see clients over Zoom. I see most of my clients over uh, video. Um, where do you see practice going in the next five, 10 years as you think about forecasting out into the future? Uh, where do you think this goes? Yeah, so we're growing quickly today and we want to continue to be able to do that. So, and, and, and we want to continue to serve people like this, right? People that are out there and building their own thing. And I'm happy that that resonates with you and, and hopefully it resonates like just in general. I know that it's increasingly doing that. So that's really nice. Uh, to build a company that uh, grows really fast, you know, I really believe that in five years and 10 years, we can serve, we, we can be one of the most successful companies in the world, right? And, and to do that right, from the very beginning, you have to have that intent. And that's kind of what we have. Uh, and, and it comes from an authentic place where we know that we really care about these customers. Like it really is a set of missionaries that are building this and that are super excited to be able to give more leverage to people that typically have none, right? And it's really empowering to be able to do that. One of the things that you've got to do, going back to like when you get into venture-backed businesses, you have to know that you can build something for a customer that you love. And you have to know that you can do it for 10 years. And for me, for this type of person, I know that I can build this type of thing for 10 years for people that I really care about because I am them. And I want to continue to build for them because my spirit is still that independent spirit. That's a beautiful place for us to wrap before we were talking, before we recorded, we said there's, there's usually some gems in these podcasts. I think that was a gem right there. So thanks for, thanks, thanks for closing on a gem. Uh, Julian, if people want to follow you on social media, obviously if they want to uh, follow what you're doing with practice, I know you have an interesting web domain. Um, so share where people can follow practice and, and also follow uh, your, mm -hmm. your world and, and your experiences. Yeah. So at, on, on Twitter, which is still my, my thing of choice, uh, is I'm twitter.com slash Julian. Uh, if you want to follow practice and you want to take a look at the stuff that we do, that we're at practice.do. And uh, the... I'm all over the place. I'm easy to find. I think I've been on the internet building things for enough long enough period of time. Uh, it's easy to find me if you look. Well, I found you. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, I am at, at Brian Levinson on Twitter, LinkedIn's the other place I like to play Brian Levinson. And then you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, we decided not to go with the com. The M was just too expensive. Um, but Julian, <laughs> Great to connect with you. Looking forward to connecting with you in the future in person, hopefully. Um, and I'm really excited to continue to get your emails. I'm signed up to get the emails from you. So I get all this information from Breather. You also do all kinds of cool content. I watched you and Steve Schlafman talk. Uh, I've seen some of the other coaches that you've brought in there. So keep it up. It's awesome to see. It's inspiring. Uh, and thanks for all that you continue to do for people like me. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You're going to write a thousand words a day. 
uh, I did it for work when I was when I wrote books for a living, and when I, I mean, it was a combination of a blogger and book writer or whatever, and, and public speaker for a living. And I do it today in order to clarify what I care about. And so it, it it's interesting because some days you want to write 1,500 words, some days you don't want to want to write at all. But it becomes almost like a religion that you follow for yourself of getting up. I actually, it, it, my, the ritual is even is even more strict than that. I get up and I'll put on probably one of five potential albums. It's all like I put on the same music to get into the same headspace, and then one and in that headspace, I write a thousand words, and then that's when my day begins. <laughs>